0: Good morning, Anthem. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians, continuing our series in paul 's letter to the Philippians and uh, and so far, we have uh, seen in, in the first chapter, Paul seems to be laying the groundwork for uh, the worth of Jesus, uh, the fact that we have a life worth dying for in Jesus. we have a freedom worth suffering for in Jesus. and then in chapter two, the beginning of it, he, he begins to talk about the work of Jesus and and how we are to join in that work as as followers of Jesus. And and this morning what we see is Paul kind of pivots now to what he's gonna be covering for the rest of the of the letter. And in the content of the rest of the letter, he says, "Now you've seen the worth of Jesus, and we've talked about the work of Jesus that makes that possible—His life, His death, His resurrection—and and and, and tell, calling you to join in that work. Now he's going to begin to talk about for the rest of the letter what does it look like to follow in the way of Jesus. So we've had the worth." We had the work, and now we're looking at what does it look like to follow in the way of Jesus. And, and so as we uh, jump into that, I, I know that one of the things, because Paul's going to be talking about what it looks like to have a life transformed in Christ. To, to know life with Christ, to, to experience transformation, to grow, to mature spiritually. And and so that's really what the rest of this book is gonna be about. Paul's letter is really, you could say a manual for discipleship or to what it looks like to follow Jesus as a believer of Jesus Christ. And and I know that as I start to talk about kind of like, what does it mean to be transformed, uh, to to have that experience? I, I know that when I say it, that there tends to be kind of like one of two, some of you are like, yes, let's do that, right? Like you're the same people who, when you heard there was a dance party last night, you're like, I wanna stay up till 2 a.m. doing a dance party, right? And then there's uh, the other one where you're like, Jesus, I want you to change my life and it's gonna be this amazing thing. And then, and then at the same time, then there's some of us though who go, man, I have, listen, pastor, like, okay, I, I get it. Like that's in the, I, I understand, but man, I have like tried that again and again and again. And, and I'm in a place now where because of a season of life I've gone through or whatnot, I'm just in a place where like, I'm just, I'm tired. Maybe I'm just in a place of disappointment. I'm in a place of frustration spiritually. I'm kind of in a place where it's almost like this, I would describe my spiritual life as like the the car kind of ran out of gas somewhere along the highway. And I'm just kind of standing there wondering like what's next. And so I know as I, as we talk about this and you think about the rest of the book, you might be in that place. And, and so I think as we begin, what we're going to do today is we get ready really to pivot to the rest of the book of Philippians is I'd like today to kind of take a step back because I think that what Paul sets up here in this passage, again, we're going to be in Philippians 2, we're going to be in verses uh, 12 through 30, the second half of chapter 2. Paul essentially invites us to zoom out. He invites us to to consider perhaps we're so focused on, like, I got to go, I got I to grow, I got to mature, and we're so focused in, like, the minutiae that we haven't kind of taken time to step back and kind of examine like kind of like the whole system of what we think of when we follow Jesus. You know, I, uh, before, uh, for a few years before I, uh, between seminary and then going full-time to pastoral ministry, I was in the business world, started a business. And, uh, and in the business world, we had this saying that we would always kind of spit out because we we're starting a business in manufacturing and there were all kinds of complexities. And I was also on the sales arm of it. So there were all th- kinds of things that could go wrong. And, and we used to say, Uh, your system is perfectly designed to produce the results you are getting. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. And, And that was just a reminder to say, if you don't like the results you're getting, then it means that probably something about the system you're operating with, like just like a machine, if you put something into the front of the assembly line, and it goes through a bunch of machines and it comes out and it's wrong, there's probably something in that system you have set up that's producing that outcome. And, and I think that what Paul's going to do today is he's going to hit on, on that. And let, me, let me just illustrate this to put it less mechanical and more into kind of a, a growth kind of illustration. A few years ago, this is where this really hit me. It, it was my friend came to me and he said, because we live in Southern California. Now, if you don't know anything about Southern California, everything's supposed to grow. And, and he came to me and he was like, dude, you need to grow tomatoes. Because we have this condo with a little, just a small little area in the back. And he said, you should, because grass, you think it's hard to grow grass here, try growing it where it's essentially desert. And so he was like, D- just give up on the grass, but try, grow tomatoes, like everything grows. You can grow lemons, you can grow avocados, but grow tomatoes. I was like, this will be awesome. So he gives me some seeds and he gives them to me and I'm like, and I just assume, like I'm a pastor, I know how to help things grow, right? So that should that should carry over to uh, uh, agriculture, horticulture, right? And so I, uh, I plant the, all the seeds, and I'm just kind of sitting back in, so it's like every day, what do you do? Well, you, you know, I put them in good soil. California's got good soil, and now I'm just going to water them every day. So then every day I would just go out and I'd water, and I was like, oh, there's not, nothing sprouting through. So i just water some more, water some more. My wife would be like, I don't know if you're supposed to do that much water. I was like, well, you know, it's like dry here. So it's like hot during the day, so if they're wet, then they'll, you know, be safe. And so... Uh, you, know, you know this is already going wrong if you know anything about plants. Uh, but anyway, so they start sprouting. They start growing up, but they're not like bearing tomatoes. And some of them are like rotting and whatnot. So then I, I did what I know, which is you just add more water, right? So I added more water. And every day I would add like inches of water. And my friend finally comes. It's like a month later. My friend comes back over. He's like, how are the tomatoes going? I was like, dude, it's not going well. Like they're kind of growing, but half of them are rotting. My backyard smells really, really bad. And then there were all these like insects and bugs, these massive worms that were like eating them that were growing. And it was weird. My wife was like, what is going on with our backyard? It became this disgusting ecosystem, right? And so she, my friend comes over and he walks in my backyard and he looks around and he's like, are you trying to grow cranberries or something? Like this is just, it's like a straight up marsh back here. And I was like, dude, I'm just adding water. The plants don't grow. And he was like, D-, he was like did you realize that your tree right here, your plants are getting no sunlight? Like there's zero sunlight. And I was like, oh, I just assumed it was Southern California. He was like, no, there, there's no sunlight. So you keep adding water and you think that that's going to be what they need to grow. But instead you need sunlight. And so what I learned from that is he was like, dude, it's, it's an ecosystem. Like there, there, there's more than just one ingredient, one input that you need here for health and growth. And you need all of those ingredients and those inputs in balanced proportion or else instead of getting growth, you're actually going to get rot." and things aren't gonna grow. You're not gonna bear fruit. And and so what I learned in that, and I think it's something that applies to our spiritual lives, which is where Paul's gonna go today, which is we need a system. We need to step back, look at the ecosystem of our lives because Paul says, God wants to do a work in you. But oftentimes what happens is we are essentially creating an ecosystem in our lives where we're just kind of like adding whatever seems good, as Paul said, like planting and watering. And we just keep kind of watering, watering, watering. But he says, you have to be able also provide the ecosystem where God can provide the growth. We're also where God can do what only God can do. In other words, you could say when God, where the sunshine can break through and God can do the work that he's gonna do. So today what we're gonna look at is we're gonna zoom out before we go through the rest of the letter and just start getting busy with trying to grow in Christ and be transformed. We're gonna step back and look at the ecosystem that we need for growth. And so first, what we're gonna look at is how God works in us for our growth. Second, the inputs that keep us from growing. And third, the ecosystem that works. Okay, the ecosystem that works, or at least I guess I should say, the ecosystem that puts us in the best place for God to do His work. So let's let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for your Word, Lord. We thank you as as we navigate through this life and we desire to grow spiritually. Some of us are in this room where we're just like, we're just hungry spiritually. We just have a sense spiritually that there's more, there's something transcendent. And, and Lord, I, I pray that today we would see how in, Je- in the work you've done in Christ, that you are the true God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that we would see how the path that he's given us, that he's not just a religious teacher, but that he is the truth. And that we would see in the path that he's carved out for us that we can find true everlasting life. And also, Lord, for those of us here who are just in a place of disappointment, place of just burnout, wherever we're at, Lord, spiritually, I ask that you give us hope, you give us encouragement, and seeing that this is a work that you delight in doing. And so, Lord, you call us children in this passage. Lord, Father, would you encourage your children? Would you encourage encourage us? Would you break through with the sunlight of your spirit and breaking through to our hearts in a way that my words can't do on their own? but you do and you delight to do through your word. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how does God work in us for our growth? Before we can talk about just growth and and talk about an ecosystem for growth, we have to ask, how does growth occur in our lives? And that's what Paul immediately gets at. And Paul in verse 12 is in mid-thought He's mid midthought. So Paul has been in chapter two again talking about, he's just left off one of the greatest portions in scripture where he talks about the incarnation of Jesus and what that looks like and what that meant and how God came into the world. The second person of the Trinity came in human flesh to save us from our sins and give us new life. And right in the middle of that, he's midthought. He says, therefore, therefore, my beloved. And one of the things, whenever you encounter the word therefore in scripture is you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. You ever heard that phrase? You have to ask, what does therefore, therefore? And so the therefore, what's it there for? Well, Paul has just told us about Jesus. And now he says, because Jesus lived this way, he saved you in this way. He's now reigning in this way in the heavens. Now that means that you are to live a specific way because of that reality. But that, that's not just kind of like some intellectual realities that Paul's kind of handing out, like, isn't that nice? And we all go away with an intellectual idea and it just sounds nice and it's sentimental. And then we just go on as if nothing changed. He says, if these, these things are true, they're not just ideas and that should affect how you live. And so he says, Jesus died for you. He lives now, reigning in heaven. So live accordingly. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. As a parent, I'm like, amen, I get that dynamic now. Uh, I'm not there, but still obey, even when I'm gone. Uh, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says, if you know Jesus, if you, you really know these truths and if you really know them, believe me, you, you will love him. And if you love him, you will then out of that will flow obedience. In fact, you could almost say, if you know him, you will love him. And if you love him, then you almost just just enjoy him. Like obedience will just be this delight, this, this overflow out of the work of what Christ has done and the reality of, of who he is. And he says, if you know him, you'll obey him. But he says, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now immediately you go, wait, wait, wait. It's like we would enjoy him and we delight in him. But then at the same time, pastor, you're saying, like in fear and trembling, that doesn't sound much like delight, right? It sounds like fear-based obedience. Like just because I'm afraid of what God's gonna do, I just have to tremble. And I'm like, oh, Lord, uh, I'm I'm so afraid to make a mistake, right? So what is Paul saying here? Because Paul is saying for God is at work in you. Because when Paul said, he's not just saying, okay, I want you to work out your salvation, your own salvation, which by the way, I should pause here and just say, notice that Paul is not saying earn your salvation. Be very, read these words very carefully. What he's saying is, let me parallel this to like using it for marriage. If Paul said, work out your marriage with fear and trembling, would you go, oh, I've, I've got to start doing stuff so that I can get married? Or I've got, to, I've got to do something because I'm going, to, I'm going to lose my marriage. And that's what that's the problem. No, he's saying you have, you have salvation. You are married. That's your state. And because that's your state, because Christ has 100% saved you and set you apart, positionally you are saved 100%. But also now I'm telling you, I want you to experience that reality, live out that reality, and, and have that joy in that life. And with fear and trembling, you don't want to miss out on that life. And so I want you to grow into, it's yours, but I want you to grow into it. Work out your marriage. You have a marriage. I want you to work that out and grow into this beautiful thing that your marriage can be. Jesus is saying, I want you to have that with Christ. And so how does that work? Well, I think Paul is hitting on a dynamic that we often kind of skip over in the Christian life. We kind of just like jump over because he says, you work out with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. We often just think that this is all about like Christian growth. It's kind of like Jesus saves us. And then after that, we're like, thank you, Jesus. And now it's just kind of like, hey, you do the work until I come again. But that's not what Paul says here. He says that God continues to do a work in you and you join in that work that God is doing. You partner with him. So what does that look like? Well, I have a whiteboard today. If this is your first time at Anthem, we don't do this every week. But I felt like Bob Ross this week. So I thought, why not? Uh, so here's, cause I think this diagram is going to help us. Here's how we tend to think when Paul says to obey, we think of ourselves like, like this. Okay. I'm going through life, right? Here's where I'm at spiritually. Maybe I'm like, that's where I'm at. Okay. Um, and so I'm kind of in this place like, and so God says, obey. And so you go, okay, I'm going to obey. Okay. And so, and, and so we're going to call this the will. I, I'm going to will myself to obey. God says, obey, will myself to obey pretty simple right and i think often what we do is we approach the christian life with pretty much this model in our heads this is the system now here's the thing though there are inputs into this system that we often are not really identifying and recognizing how powerful they are because this is what's actually going on because the question is how can i be free to obey and here's to what level are we free because oftentimes what we experience is, God, I want to obey you. But if you've tried that, if you're honest with yourself, you've tried that and you're like, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. so, because this is what's going on. We have things in our, so here's our heart. And what the heart wants, the will will find Doable. What the heart wants, the will will find doable. The mind will find rational, and the affections will find desirable. What the heart wants, the Bible says, out of the heart flow the issues of life. What your heart truly values and loves, your mind will find rational. It will rationalize it. You'll emotionally get yourself there. Your affections will find things desirable, and your will will find doable. Everything in you follows your heart. And what God says is there are a lot of things in the ecosystem of this world that have a hold of your heart. And so what happens is in this world, let's just, let's, let's just limit it to the flesh, right? Let's go with the unholy trinity, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And so there are things in your life, like your flesh, that's constantly speaking to your heart, proposing things to your heart, giving messaging to your heart. There are things in you, desires and passions, temptations that are there. And then also, we live in a world that is usually trying to manipulate that. We live in a hyper-advertising, technocratic world where everything is actually designed to get our attention. We live in an attention economy, getting our attention to get us to purchase things and whatnot. In other words, now we live in a world, too, that not only is just kind of like, as Paul says, twisted and corrupted and with its desires and whatnot, but also it's taking advantage of those things. So, it's also trying to get the fleshly things, and it's coming in, and it's going after your heart. And then, not only that, but then we, we know that there's the devil and that he's orchestrating all these things. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe in Satan, who's the grand conspirator. And so, his thing is to do anything he can to keep you from living this out, what Paul's saying. And so also we have these influences and we have temptations, we have peer pressure, we have cultural realities. We have also just our biology and the things nature and nurture, all those things are part of all the things that are inputs into your life. And what Paul's saying is this is the ecosystem of a fallen world that's affecting you, which we're going to go into in a minute. And the question is what Paul is saying, Christian, therefore, in what sense are you free? Apart from Christ, if you don't know Christ this morning, in what sense are you free? This is at the heart of all the greatest philosophical, outside of the church, all the greatest philosophical debates. I was saying, in what sense are human beings actually free? Do we actually make decisions on our own? Because what, what Martin Luther called this was the bondage of the will. See, in scripture, as Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody, right? The question is not whether or not you will serve somebody. The question is who. This is why Paul says either you will be a slave to the flesh or you will be a slave of Christ. And Paul here is telling us how that's possible. The way that this works in order for us to find freedom is that we need our heart to be changed. And we need the one who can change hearts, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Once Christ has made us new and he gives us a new heart, what Paul is saying, you have salvation. He's giving you a new heart. And now what happens is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ now comes into your life And begins to fan into flame, that reality, the sunshine breaks in and begins to go to work in you so that it interacts and it defeats and combats all and contends with all these things so that you would have a free will. In other words, now the Holy Spirit is the one who drives you. That's why Paul says you are, when you are walking in the Spirit, Galatians 4 through 6, it's all about walking in the Spirit and being slaves of Christ. Those two themes dovetail, and you get out of that the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Because this is what's happening. And we should desperately want to say, God, and this is the thing why he says fear and trembling. In the Bible, when people come into the presence of God, he says, my spirit is now taking up residency within you. And when people come into my presence, they realize it is holy ground. And the mountains shake and they tremble in my holy presence. Because I am a God who is a refining fire. And I will have my way. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, if you are new in Christ, work with God. Because here's the thing. It should be with fear and trembling. Because now he has made you holy ground. A holy work that he is doing, setting you apart 100% in Christ. And now he wants you to lean into that. And in some ways I would say, God, what I've experienced in my life is God is saying either, Paul's saying, please go the easy way. Don't do it the hard way. What Paul is saying is this is the dynamic of how we grow, is that we now have to think about what is the ecosystem that gives space for the sunshine to come in and to fan into flame the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're going to get into that. First, let's take a little bit more of a a deeper dive into what are the things, the inputs that are keeping us from growing. So look at verses 14 through 15. 15. Paul goes on, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it's interesting, Paul's like, this is really good in Jesus, go do this. And then immediately he goes into, do all things without grumbling or disputing. NIV says grumbling or arguing, okay? There's like this grumbling that's happening, there's something coming out of you that's just kind of angry and mad and it's causing you to fight with your grumbling in your own soul with yourself and then going outward to others and just right and so he says first it's so that a result says that don't grumble and complain that a result if you do these things you'll what or if you you don't do these things you'll be blameless you'll be free you'll be you'll shine like a light in the world You'll you'll live like children of God who are just free and delighting in him. But if you do live your lives grumbling and disputing, Paul says, all my work will be in vain. Because the darkness will overcome you. To go back to the original illustration, the ecosystem will overtake you. And it will rot. That's a pretty stark statement, right? You're like, oh, just grumbling and complaining, Paul? Why does Paul make such a strong statement? I think it's because grumbling and complaining are one of the most basic ways that we reveal what's really captivated our hearts. It's, It's one of the ways, essentially, that what are the things that have captivated our hearts, the inputs in our lives that are actually giving us assumptions about the way life should be. Let me illustrate this. This last week, so again, we moved from California last year. I'm from Ohio originally, so this like cold spell, and I lived in Minnesota for two years. I was like, uh, I'm good with cold weather. I've done this before. I think California for eight, ten, like eight years living there, I think it just made me really soft. So all of a sudden, the cold weather hit, right? And it got colder, and they got colder, and the snow kept falling. And as the snow, and then it was like eventually like even like Satan's like, it's getting cold down here, right? Like, it's even cold down here. And so you're kind of like, it was incredibly cold this last week. And so as I'm going through this, like I'm just every single time, like the staff could hear me a lot of times when I'm walking out the door. Like I'd walk out the door and the wind would hit me and I'm like, like, why is it so cold? (laughs) It was like, why, oh Lord? I was just a walking Psalm 88 last week. And just crying out to the Lord, why is this happening? And it was this, like, grumbling. Like, I, I was, told my wife, I just sounded like, it was like, I was like, the, if you encountered me, you would swear you encountered the penguin from Batman. Like, I was just walking around, the, like, the block like, Everywhere I went last week. And, and eventually, and then I'm studying this passage, and I'm like, Lord, open my heart to where I'm grumbling. And literally, I'm sitting in my shed where it's, like, freezing cold. And I'm going, and I'm just sitting there, like, and then show me where I'm grumbling. Oh, it's so cold. And the Lord's like right there. And I'm like, oh, 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 okay, yeah, that. So what I realized in the midst of it, I I get it. It's kind of a, a silly example. And this gets very, very serious though. And I know it's a light example. It's kind of flippant. But the reality is that I was living out of what brought me there was an assumption that just my life should be comfortable. I mean, I was kind of a curmudgeon going through last week with people. I encounter people in the store. I'm not as, like, I'm just not focused on them. I'm just thinking about myself and, like, how cold it is. My hands are chapped and all these problems I have. And it just, I was just on the edge, and I could feel myself ready to just, like, be angry. You know, like I'm driving on the street, and now I'm using, like, the ice and everything as, like, an excuse to be like, watch where you're going, right? Some of you are like, that was my pastor, Right? Where did it come from? That assumption that was formed into me, I was shaped by the ecosystem I live in. I'm shaped by this ecosystem that says that I should just be, for me, I think probably just be comfortable. That, that things should be easy in life. That I, I shouldn't experience any kind of physical pain or discomfort. And what Paul's saying is that we live in a crooked and twisted generation, in other words, taking the good things of God's good creation, and then they're just twisted slightly where these good things become God things in our hearts. And then we begin to turn our hearts to them, and they give us messages and pseudo-gospels that tell us how to find life, how to find joy, how to find blessing, how to find freedom, how to find hope and, and meaning and all these things. And they fill our hearts with these messages, and what happens is it becomes this ecosystem that we begin to live in. And it drives our heart, it drives the assumptions. And what Paul says is when we grumble and complain, it reveals what's just gotten into our heart and has grabbed a hold of it. So you don't just need to walk through life going, okay, Lord, I'm going to intellectually think about what might be grabbing a hold of my life and my heart. He's saying you already know because it just comes out of you. I should have success, so don't get in my way. And if you do, right? I should have pleasure, and when I don't get it, mm, I have a schedule, so do not interrupt me. Things should just work. I deserve more sleep. People should be easier. Another diaper. Really? Ugh, right? Like, we're just, like I was thinking, it was like, when I started thinking about this, in the fact, there's millions of us, it's like, it reminded me, it's like, we're just like March of the Penguins, right? Just, rah, 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 rah. Like, through it, like, I imagine, like, just Morgan Freeman voicing over, like, a documentary of humanity. I mean, like, from the dawn of time, they march through life, grumbling and complaining. Just all, as we go through life. Because we live in a twisted and a crooked World that takes all the good things that God has given us and these inputs that are meant to point our hearts to him and roll up in glory to him. And instead they're twisting our desires so it points it off and it leads to assumptions that just are not assumptions that will give life. And Paul says, if you live that way, you're just going to continue to facilitate that ecosystem. And it's gonna get darker and the rot is gonna get worse. That's why he says then all this work I'm doing is gonna be poured out in vain. So he says, the best first thing you can do is look at where you're grumbling and complaining. But the thing is, if we're gonna have an ecosystem that nurtures the work of God in us, it's not just enough to identify those things. We also have to actually build an ecosystem where the work of the Holy Spirit is stronger. So let's look at that finally, an ecosystem that works. As, as, a, as a pastor, as a dad, As a friend, this is something that really, like, how do we in our times, this is something we as elders, as as pastors here at Anthem, this is something that concerns us, that we're thinking about, that we care about, that we're invested in, and we're pursuing it somewhat slowly, but then as we get more confident, pursuing it quickly, how do we as a church, as at the season of life that we're in, how do we in the season as a culture that we're in, this cultural moment, how do we navigate it? Because here's the problem that we see talking about the influence of the ecosystem we live in this is from pastor tim keller he's in new york city so he really sees this amped up he says the crisis is this despite its incoherent moral cosmology secular culture cosmology just means like worldview secular culture has created an enormously powerful constantly immersive moral ecology see there, ecosystem through the digital revolution that overwhelms the two or three hours a week christians worship and study in church See, so what he's saying is we have nowadays such a powerful ecosystem that is shaping us and it's completely immersive. It's, it's in our pocket at all times. It's by our bed, bed it's, it's We're scrolling through it at all times. If we have a silent moment, we pick it up. We almost don't even have any moments of silence or where we're disconnected, but there are constantly messages and media and things that are coming that are feeding the assumptions and what really matters in life and filling your imagination and captivating it and it's shaping you. Most likely, if you think about it, our digital age and our use of technology is probably the most, think about this, the most formative set of practices in human history. And so the question becomes, If Paul is saying that you have to be careful about the ecosystem you're in, because here's the thing, I think what Keller's saying, what I would say, I think what you've experienced is it's something that now is like the water that we swim in. It's not really something you can fully pull yourself out of. Like this ecosystem is here, we live in it. So I'm not gonna give you like some like pull yourself out and let's all go live on like and churn our own butter and some commune and get away from this thing. Like I don't think that's possible. Well, it's possible to do that, but anyways, you get what I mean? Instead, what we have to do is not just say, how do we limit these things? We do need to ask ourselves, how do we limit these things? In what ways do we need to limit them? We talked about that in sermons. I would encourage you, get a phone app, keep track of how many hours you're on things, limit things. Put a lid on them. But at the same time, we need a bigger ecosystem. So what we're doing as a church going forward, and by the way, this is not legalism. Thinking about how you as a Christian actually focus on pouring in effort into your life is not legalism. So right now I just want to dispel if anyone's thinking like, oh, we're going to talk about like practices and disciplines and things I need to do as a Christian, that's legalism. Well, here's the thing. One quote that wrecked me on this was a guy, Dallas Willard, who said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort." Paul is not saying, earn your way into salvation. He says, you have salvation. And therefore, because you have it, now pour yourself in because God's spirit is coming to dwell in you so that you would join in the delight of the Godhead, of the spirit's delight in God. And you would be free to enjoy that and live freely. And he says, listen, if you're calling that work and you're just calling, that's delight, that's cultivation. And so Paul says, that's effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning your way into God's graces. This is not, this is saying you have grace. Now delight in that grace so you can take a hold of it. And so how do we do that? This is, what I wanna do is just lay out here at the ending of the four levels, what we're gonna call four levels of discipleship. You're gonna be hearing more about these. At the end, I'll just tell you next Friday, we're having a community vision night. I would invite you to be there to hear more about this and get a bigger picture. This is where we are going as a church because the thing is we need to have as a church what we would call an ecosystem for discipleship. We need to know why we're doing what we're doing so we can grow in Christ and how to as best possible take hold of the different rhythms that God has given us as the body of Christ, what we see scripturally so that, and be very clear so that you know where to lean in and engage so that we are growing. So in other words, we can plant and water as best we can trusting God to provide the growth. So here's first level, ground level. And I'm going to draw this like, so the four G's, every Christian in your life, the church rises or falls, doesn't make a bit of difference if there isn't a ground foundational level in each believer's life with what I would say facilitating that are spiritual disciplines. Habits and things that are in our life, so I'm going to say ground level. Spiritual disciplines that are in our life, do you have disciplines, habits, Bible reading, prayer, beyond that? That are actually habituated into your life that are as natural to you as pulling out your phone as often as you do and scrolling. Because we are actually teaching ourselves to do that. Wiring our brains to do that. And we need to wire our brains to be in God's word. To be thinking God's word. To be meditating. To be turning to God. And so one of the things, just to help with this quickly, this week started Lent historical time in the church where we focus on how do we die to ourselves and rise in Christ at Easter. And so we put together something that follows this sermon series. And every week it drops you off working out for that week, a simple spiritual discipline, kind of like, hey, try it on. And it's going to help you look, get honest before God about your heart. And the idea is let's tear down and kill the different ecosystem structures that are killing us so that we can find life in Christ. So I'd invite you to grab that guide. You can give them your email afterwards. You'll get that digitally. We just have a digital version, but you can print it. But go through that, and it'll follow with the series and work out those ground-level disciplines. But then also the guide level. So as we, we have kind of like, let's call it like a house, right? That, I'm not, not an art major. So we have also in our lives, we have guides. We could say this is like the front porch conversations. This is someone in your life, who is going to be able to one-on-one walk with you, a mentor. One of the things in, uh, there's a book, the content of their character came out about a year or two ago where James Davidson Hunter, he's a sociologist at at Virginia, really great sociologist. And they went through and they did all this look, the look at like, how do schools, how how do different ways, like schools of thought form people, develop character? His idea was Martin Luther King Jr. He wasn't created in a classroom. How do you create a man like that with that kind of conviction? And when he said, one of the things that you have to have is you have to have heroes. You have to have people who you can emulate in life, who are models, who are examples. This is why, I'm not gonna be able to unpack it, Paul goes into right after this, I think, Timothy and then Epaphras. And he's gonna say, look at these men. Look at their way of life. Look at how they model Christ. Christ leveraged all his rights and privileges for your good. So did this man. See how it works out in human flesh. Not because he's perfect, not because he's Jesus. See his his failures and his successes in Christ and emulate it. Do you have anyone like that in your life who recaptures your imagination for what it looks like to follow Christ? Again, next Friday, we're going to be talking about the vision night, how we're going to try to facilitate some of these things as a church. Then we have over here, something you might be familiar with is groups. So you have your ground level, guide level, now group. This is like one on 12, one to 20, something like that, where you're, you have a tribe, you have a group of people who are walking out their faith together, like a Epaphras, who's a fellow soldier, a fellow worker, other people who are able to discuss God's word and the implications for your life. And so one of the things that also uh, James Davidson Hunter brings up in his book is that you need a place where you discuss, where you really wrestle with. Where you refine, where you take these big truths and you go, what does this look like in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in the, the friendships that we share? And so we need to have a group around us as well. Again, we're building the ecosystem. Lastly, the gathering. The gathering. Now what I'm saying is you as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if the more of these four you have, I guarantee the healthier you're going to be. And so we have the ground level disciplines. We have the guide one-on-one. You have a group. And then now we get to the highest, which is the crowd. You get to the gathering, the Sunday gathering. What you're in now. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're like, you know, I was telling tell me to come to church. I'm here. But the thing is, oftentimes we miss that in the New Testament, how important it is that they're gathering together. And we miss it because they don't talk about it a lot. But here's the reason why. Just so everyone's clear. Why don't they talk a lot in the New Testament about gathering together as, as the church? You know why? It's so obvious once you see it because all of the letters are written to people in churches. They're reading the letter in a church. So they don't like write in the letter, like, hey, gather. Instead, what you see in the New Testament is them correcting, hey, all y'all who gather as a church, you need to do it correctly now. I need to correct some things. In other words, it's just part of the air they breathe and the assumption in the New Testament that they're actually gathering together or else they wouldn't even be hearing the words that are being read. And so throughout, but the question for us today, you go, but why do we go to church? Why are we here? Here's the fundamental reason why. We gather every Sunday because we are being reminded right now of what is most true of the universe. We gather every single Sunday. If you wanna protest what's going on in the world, we are the originals as Protestants because we protest every Sunday that there is a king who is coming and his kingdom will, not, will last forever. And we're staking our flag down in that. And every week it's not just the sermon, but it's the prayers, it's the confession. It's being confessing our sin and being consoled by Christ in the, and hearing the gospel anew. It's singing songs, it's prayers, it's taking communion afterwards. It's all these things that shape us. They shape us with the true story. And every Sunday we have an opportunity to do that. Because all throughout our week we're shaped by the stories that we're being told. And every week we have a chance to gather around and to put it into practice with one another and to be shaped. Our imaginations get twisted and crooked. Our imaginations get us into this mess. What Paul is saying is allow these things to reform your imagination and your imagination is also, God's gonna use it to get you out of this mess, to captivate your heart and give you freedom. So again, next Friday night, Community Vision Night, we're gonna, I'm gonna unpack this more. How does this work as a church as a whole and whatnot going forward? It's gonna be more of a town hall, so there's questions. But listen, Jesus isn't just merely talking about how to stop grumbling. Jesus wants us to have life in him so that our hearts would be captivated by what's true, so we'd be free to obey. That our, our obedience would almost just be enjoyment. It could almost be no love and enjoy. So let's recap, if we are going to follow Jesus and grow, we need an ecosystem that nurtures God's work in us. First, by recognizing how God works in us for our growth. To see that's by the spirit of God working in us, we have to join in that work. Then second, by taking stock of the grumbling that reveals the broken and twisted inputs and in the ecosystem of our life. And then third, by focusing our hearts on Christ, by investing in one of those four levels of discipleship. I would encourage you walking away from here today as we go into the last part of this book to consider where are the areas of this I need to lean into. Perhaps find a gospel or a connection group. Perhaps it means to, in the connection group, ask someone there if you could meet once a month. Something like that. Someone who's more seasoned in the faith, farther along than you. Can I meet with you? To mentor me, to disciple me. Be intentional. Perhaps it means to be more regularly gathered here. Perhaps it means to take hold of that Lent guide and and to work those disciplines in your life and, and to let those habits overcome all these other things. Which one will you invest in? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray.